Okay, we're going to focus in on the story from Luke 15. It's commonly called, or historically it's been called, the prodigal son. And uh, in a more modern translation of your Bible, it might have a different name. It might be called the lost son, uh, which is more accurate, but still not too accurate. The prodigal son is a terrible title for this story. It's a cool story, perhaps one of the best stories in literature, uh, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. I've heard it called the greatest story ever told. Actually, I've heard another story called the greatest story ever told, too. But, uh, uh, but uh, it's a, here's why it's a bad name. Um, we've used the word prodigal so often to refer to this story that we might think it refers to a son who acts like this son, disrespectful to his dad, going off rebelling against his family and his faith and living sinfully. Prodigal is a very old adjective and it has a very limited application. It just means somebody who spends more than what they can afford to spend. It's spendthrift. And so it's real easy. It's, it's not as insulting an adjective as this kid deserves uh, to call him prodigal. Uh, to be merely prodigal, we could have lots of people who spend more money than they ought to spend. Um, but this guy did way more than just spend more than he ought to spend. But the... Um, the more serious flaw is he's not the main character of the story. Remember, when we talk about the parables, um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we need to look for the audience. Who is Jesus talking to? How do they expect the story to end? Who does Jesus approve of? Who does he disapprove of? And how does the story surprise his listeners with something different than what they expected? That's the truth that we should, we should glean from this today. And the story, what happens with the younger son, the one who's lost and found, that's really not the main focus of this story. But we'll get to that. In order to see where the main focus is, we've got to go back to the beginning of chapter 15 and see the context. In verses 1 and 2, we see this. Um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who's Jesus going to tell this story to? He's telling it to the Pharisees to answer their mutterings. Why is Jesus hanging out with those guys? Is what the Pharisees want to know. And Jesus tells them this story as part of the answer. First, let's back up and talk about this a little bit. Sinners, you can pretty well picture that word. Tax collectors, you may have heard this before, but that's, a worse, that's worse then than it is now. Um, you may have no love for tax collectors in your own life. You might see the IRS as a government bureaucrat with his hand in your pocket, and you might think, yeah, I don't like tax collectors either. But we don't, as much as you might think that's not a pleasant job or, or somebody who you, you like to see in your life, tax collectors in our day are much higher on the social ladder than tax collectors in the day of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, tax collector meant more much more than just a government bureaucrat who's looking out for your money. You're looking after getting your money. In order to be a tax collector in the day of Jesus, in, in the, the, the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, for, first of all, in Palestine, that meant you're a Jewish guy mixing with Gentiles. So you're ceremonially, religiously unclean. You're, um, in, in religious terms, and the way the, the, the Jewish people practice their religion, mixing with the Romans would make these tax collectors unclean. Even more significantly, the Romans are the occupying power administering government, their government in Palestine, uh, in Israel, a nation occupied by Jewish people. And so he is a collaborator. 
he's a Roman sympathizer helping the Romans collect their taxes from the Jewish people. The Romans really had two main rules when they conquered a province. Pay your taxes and don't rebel. And so the tax collectors helped them do that. A more modern example, I think, that, would, that might resonate, you've probably seen more movies about this, and so this example would probably help you see. Um, when the Nazis conquered most of Europe, they didn't send German Nazi party officials to administer all over the government all over. Most of the local day-to-day -day administration of government in the, the places they conquered were handled by locals who were not Nazi sympathizers who were collaborators with the, with the Nazi government. And they were seen as turncoats to their people. Have, have, you seen it, have you seen this depicted in a film? What was life like for those people when the war ended badly for the Nazis? And it, was, it was awful. The people, the civilian population of all those countries turned on them brutally. Um, and, and not without justice. You know, they turned on them brutally because they, they felt like they were giving them what they deserved. That's more of a picture for how the Jewish people in Israel would have felt about tax collectors in their day. Um, and uh, the other thing is they were, you know, they were religiously unclean. They were sort of turncoat Roman sympathizers. Also, they were seen widely as thieves. You know, the Romans practiced uh, tax farming, which would mean they would assign a district of their empire to a guy and give him a quota. Uh, you get to collect taxes in this district, and you're responsible for sending us a certain amount of money. And how, what, how then would the tax collector respond to that? He'd go collect all he could, squeeze all he could out of the people, send his quota off to Rome, and enrich himself with the excess. And that's why tax collectors were often very wealthy themselves, but at the expense of their neighbors. And so it's no, it's no wonder that these people were reviled in, in Jewish society. And yet Jesus hung out with them. Zacchaeus was a tax, tax collector. Matthew, the disciple, was a tax collector. Levi turned Matthew. And so the Pharisees are justifiably, perhaps, wondering, what's Jesus doing having dinner with the likes of these, these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them three ways. He tells them three stories. He tells them the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, some Bibles would, would headline it. By the way, the word the story of the prodigal son, that's not scriptural. That's just like an editor's um, title. The story scriptural. The title's not. Um, a more accurate title would be the lost son, the parable of the lost son, but, and, and some of your Bibles will title it that. But again, we're going to see as we go on that this lost son really isn't the primary focus. There are three characters in this story. There's the dad, and there are two sons, the older son and the younger son. And... Uh, uh, Linda read it for us, so I'm going to go over some of the same scriptures without reading them in, entirely, but I'd just like to comment on them. In verse 11, you see that the younger son wants to claim his inheritance early. Now, according to, uh, to the law of the day, according to Deuteronomy, the older son gets a double portion. And so if there are only two sons, the estate's going to be divided into two parts. The older son's going to get two-thirds, and the younger son's going to get one-third. And... That's in accordance with, with Jewish law. And it's not unheard of for a dad to, say, go into retirement before his death and go ahead and apportion his estate and let the sons go ahead and start administering the part and having theirs. What's very unorthodox and very unusual and rather dishonoring and disrespectful in any time, now or then, is to go to your dad and say, Dad, you're not dying fast enough. I need my money now. Uh, and that's really what, what, the, uh, what the younger son's saying. He, you know, 
shows a lack of, of affection for his father, a lack of honor for his father, and says, you know, I can't wait till your death. Uh, let me have it now. And surprisingly, the dad says, okay. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details, but remember, this is a farm society. Uh, even in our society today, uh, those of you who own property, can you imagine converting your net, your net worth, your total net worth, uh, so that you had a third of it in liquid assets? That makes sense to you? In a farm economy, much of this dad's wealth is going to be land, right? What's he, how's he going to give his son a third of the estate? He's going to either impoverish himself in order to do that, or worse yet, give the son some land and watch the son sell off the land to strangers so he'll have a pile of cash to take off to the far country. So either way, the dad's response is over-the-top generous, it looks like to me. Let's go to the next passage. He goes off to a distant country. Now, where's a distant country? In this context, it's going to be a Gentile country, and, and later details are going to make that plain. And then he spends everything, squanders his money in wild living, and he, now he's in need because there's a famine in the land. Let's go on to the next passage. He ends up trying to eke out a living after he squanders his wealth by feeding the pigs. Now, remember, for a young Jewish man, it's hard to sink any lower, but he's going to go lower still. He not only feeds the pigs, but he envies their food. And it gets worse. He doesn't just envy their food and eat the food of pigs. He envies their food, and nobody gives him any. So he wishes he could eat what the pigs are eating, but he doesn't even get that. Now, that's, that's about as low as you can go. Uh, the pigs, from Jewish ceremonial law, are an unclean animal. So he goes from being the, the second son of a landowner, of a farmer, to being... Um, in a far Gentile country, feeding pigs, wishing he could eat what they eat, and not even being able to get that. Um, in any group, in any meeting this size, we probably have some people who are more inclined towards mercy and some others who might be more inclined towards justice. For the justice people in the room, if we're honest with ourselves, this might be a good place for the story to end. It, Arrogant, selfish, punk, dishonored his dad. He's getting exactly what he deserves, isn't he? And, uh, and yet, uh, we know that's not going to end there. In fact, uh, what well, Jesus said in, Rome, in uh, John eight thirty four, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There's an aspect of this, there's a truth in this that we can grasp. I don't think this is the main thrust of the parable, but we can, uh, we can grab this. Uh, Peter wrote, that a man is a slave to whatever controls him. In recovery circles, uh, we learn this about addiction. There's this myth in the world that addicts continue in their addiction because the high is so good. That's only true the first time. Uh, why do addicts continue in their addiction? Because not high is unbearable. At, they, go, they go into the far country and pursue the riotous living, thinking that that's going to be fun and exciting. But after a season, the addiction enslaves, and then the state of not being high becomes unbearable, and they, they found that what they were chasing for their pleasure has enslaved them and, and held them in bondage. Let's go on with the story. Verse 17, it says, He came to his senses, and to me that mental journey is really the long journey. From, from Israel to the far country seems like a long way. 
but to clear away the denial and rationalization to where he can come to his senses, that's, that may be the longer journey than the one he took geographically. Um, and, and to me, that just means seeing things plainly, seeing things as God sees them, seeing my own life through God's eyes rather than through my own cloud of denial and rationalization and whatever else I want to use. Um, and notice that when he comes to his senses, he remembers his dad. And what's he remember about his dad? He remembers his kindness and he remembers his generosity. Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. We sing a song about that. And that's what this boy remembers about his dad. And then notice when he, he decides to go back and he, he rehearses his speech. He rehearses it in detail. And we're going to see that he's going to give it most of the way until he gets interrupted. His speech is going to be this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, when he says, I've sinned against heaven, that reminds me of uh, David's prayer in Psalm 51. And David says, it's against you that I've sinned. He recognizes that, that by dishonoring his father, he's not only sinning against his dad and sinning against his family, but he's also sinning against the God, d- defying the standards that God set for him. And then this uh, part where he says, I'm no longer worthy. And we use that phrase sometimes as a joke now, as sort of a... Uh, uh, over-the-top groveling. But uh, this seems like a, uh, an example of sincere repentance here to me. I'm, n- I'm not worthy to be called your son. He comes back he, he comes back humbly. He comes back without making demands. I, I, know, I know almost all of us have probably had this experience where, where somebody might apologize to you, or maybe you're the apologizer, and then there's still expectations. Now I've apologized to you, now it's your turn to apologize to me. Or now I've apologized to you, now I have some, some demands I'd like for you to meet. Uh, but this son comes back with no demands. He, he offers his apology, he's planning to offer his sincere apology and take what he can get. Then he goes. You know, you've often heard, this is an old cliche, the first step in, in getting help for a problem is admitting that you have a problem. The son realizes, he comes to his senses, he realizes he has a problem, and then he does step two, he gets up and goes. And that's oftentimes a part that we overlook. We think, well, yep, I got a problem. And then two years later, I still got a problem. Well, you got to do something about it. And this son does. But notice this, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, I'm reading into the text. This is a little preacher embellishment here. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch. How is it that dad would see him when he's a long way off still? And what I like to believe about this is dad's on the front porch looking for him, hoping and waiting for him to come back. You know, we learned in Romans 1 that the judgment of God isn't when God chases you down and gives you the big smackdown for your sin. It's when he lets you go. The judgment of God is we turn away, we rebel, we go off into a far, to a far country or whatever, and we endure the natural consequences of our own foolish choices. That's what happened to this boy. That's the judgment of God. But when he comes home, the dad's looking for him, the dad's waiting for him, the dad's eager to receive him. And he runs to his son. Now, I've heard whole sermons preached on this phrase. He ran to his son. And here's how it goes. I'll give you the short version. It's not common in our culture for old men to run. It's even less common in their culture for old men to run. Try to picture this. Form a mental picture of your own grandfather and think about him running. 
and, and for most of us, that's going to be kind of hard to do. I had two grandfathers. I can't. I never saw either one of them run. Now, m- maybe you've seen your grandfather run, uh, but this is this is a guy, an, an older man. He's got a, two adult children, and uh, and yet he's running. Running for the grandfathers, running for the old men was less common 2,000 years ago than it is today. They didn't jog for sport. They walked. And they didn't walk for sport. They walked for transportation. They walked. Walking took the place of cars and planes and stuff um, because they didn't have those things. So they, they would walk to get around, but they didn't jog for exercise, and they particularly didn't jog. Old men in the ancient Near East did not jog because their clothing would have made it very inconvenient to jog. You know, they were sandals and long robes. And so in order to run without tripping over your robes, a dad would have to pull up his robes, kind of hike it up over his knee to run, which would have been kind of indecent uh, in that culture in that day. So can you picture the very undignified image of this old man hiking up his robes, tearing across the field to greet his son? And yet, to me, this is a perfect picture of what's happened for us. You know, how did God humble him? Why did Jesus come to us as a baby in a manger instead of on a white horse with brandishing a sword? We couldn't make it to God. He humbled himself to come to us and to make a way. Now, this is a beautiful picture of salvation. And then the boy starts giving his speech. He's, he's got it rehearsed. You can tell he's got it down because he starts giving the exact speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you, blah, blah, blah. And dad cuts him off. Dad won't let him finish the speech. He's not trying to hear the son groveling and coming back to be the servant. Dad interrupts him. We'll get to that in a minute. This is a story that's got some, I think, false endings and some perhaps alternate endings. In Buddhism, there's a very similar story. Um, Son goes off, dishonors his father, lives a wild, dishonoring to Asian culture life, and then comes home. And in the Buddhist version of this story... The son comes home and the dad lets him back in the home and then watches and sees how he, how he conducts himself now. He um, pays attention to see after a season that the son's character truly has changed, that his apology was sincere, that he's a different man than the immature boy that went off. And then after recognizing that the son truly has changed, then dad restores him to full sonship and, and receives him back into the family. The Pharisees would have liked that story better than the one Jesus told. That would have, the, for the Pharisees, they would have thought, that seems like wisdom. You know, this is foolish to go and forgive and embrace a guy into the family when he's shown nothing but dishonor, and, and who knows, he might just be sorry for the consequences. He may not be a changed man. But that's not the God we serve. That's not the way Jesus told the story. Because Jesus was telling the story about the God that we love and that we worship and how he loves us. So here's what the dad says. He interrupts and he says, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, let's kill the fattened calf. It's party time. The son was dead and now is alive. He was, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We're celebrating right here and now, I think. Uh, was that celebrating or... Uh, or terror shriek, terror-filled shrieking. I don't know, but uh, so, um, that's okay. Um, that's that must be Maria's class. Maria's class—they have more fun than we do, uh, but that's okay. That's you know they they get to enjoy the party as well. 
Um, I don't want to give too much away too soon, but we have plans for changing our children's program in a way that's kind of exciting to me, and uh, um, it's a, um, just stay tuned. You know, we'll talk about it at the leaders' meeting tonight, and, uh, um, and it would give them more freedom to make more noise without bugging you, and that part excites me. Uh, so uh, we're, we're dreaming. But uh, we'll talk about some of that tonight, and stay tuned. We'll, talk, we'll keep talking about it, maybe at the business meeting in March. So I learned a phrase in seminary last semester, and I don't know if it's a seminary phrase or like an old preacher phrase, but uh, I was the second oldest guy in my class. I, I was about the same age as the professor, um, but there was a guy in our class, I think who's older than me, uh, who's a veteran AME preacher. And it seems like he's been a preacher for decades. Funny guy, Dave and I love this guy. And uh, whenever the professor would say something particularly insightful, this AME preacher would say, that'll preach. And, and what that means is that you can get a good message out of that passage. You can get a good uh, sermon out of that insight. And so when I read this part here where they began to celebrate after the dad ran to him, that's what I say about that. That'll preach. You can get a good message off that. In fact, I've preached this message before. Um, some of you were there about 10 years ago when I was first ordained. I gave my testimony, and I used this passage as my text. And the title of my message was, The Prodigal Son Was a Better Man Than Me. And I don't want to do, I want to do a different message now, but the, the, the short version of that message was this. He was a better man than me because he was honest. And he told his dad the truth, and he went off and left and did his thing. Uh, where I was wimpier than the prodigal son is I wasn't willing to admit to myself or to my family where I really stood. And I really tried to live with a foot in each world. I would have little, little field trips off to riotous living, but then I'd come home and enjoy the blessings of being part of my, my, my family. And you'd think that might be better, Actually, it prolonged the agony, uh, for, especially for the people who love me, and it prolonged my repentance. I, I feel like I eventually came to my senses. I feel like I was lost, and now I'm found, but I think it took longer because I was able to pretend that I wasn't out there in the distant country for longer than I should have. And so if I'd been more honest, I, this ought to be a word of encouragement. If you've got adult children who you feel like are off in the wild country or in the far country living riotously, as hard as that is to watch, enduring the natural consequences of that, one of the things God uses to bring us to repentance, to bring us to our senses. And uh, it came ultimately for me, but later than it needed to. If I'd have been honest, if I'd have been as, as, as honest with myself and with my family as the, the, the lost son, the younger son had been, I think it would have been quicker for me. This reminds me, Oh, the end of that message for me is, I'm enjoying the party now. This is, that's, the, that's what my life is now. I, I went into the party, and that's it. I mean, the life I live, the, the work I get to do at school, the work I get to do here at church, I feel like is all part of the celebration. Take a look at the symbolism of the father's response to the younger son. He gives him a robe, a ring, and sandals. Uh, what's this mean? These are not what servants get. These are what sons get. And so dad immediately... He, he cuts off his speech and says, welcome back, my son. You were dead, now you're alive. You're lost, now you're found. This reminds me of Psalm 103. Uh, I'll start with verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his children. A thousand years before Jesus told this story, David wrote this psalm. So 
Prodigal Son's not a good title. It's not really all that much about him, and it's not about his prodigality. It's about him leaving and coming back, right? Lost Son might be a better title, but I think it's more about the father than the son. It's more about the compassionate father, so that might even be a better title. But now we're going to get to the end. I don't think either one of those guys is the focus of this story. Remember the audience that Jesus is talking to. Uh, There was another brother. Verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. This conversation is going to go on, but remember this scene because this is how the story ends. The angry son is outside. The dad's on the, on the porch or wherever pleading with him to come in, and the angry son won't come in. I think this is a message of salvation. I think this is a message about salvation, and I think the older son won't accept the father's invitation to join the party. A very sad message. Here's the conversation continuing. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Kind of shows how he saw the relationship with the dad. I'm slaving. I don't think the dad would have called him a slave, but he called himself that. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this, when this son of yours, notice he won't call him my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. So what's he been doing? He's been earning his father's love, he thought, by slaving away and not disobeying. Uh, Those self-salvation projects that we think are going to earn us God's favor are not the way to heaven. Look at dad's answer. Again, a loving, compassionate father. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, notice dad calls him your brother, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, notice here, the father doesn't give him the smackdown for being self-righteous and arrogant and angry. And I've had, to, I've had this conversation with some of my younger friends. God the Father loves self-righteous jerks too. It's, it's, you're the one that doesn't. <laughs> and, I know, and I know that. I mean, I've, I've had those conversations a couple times. God doesn't say, all right, the lost son's back in, now you're out. He says, you both belong with me. But notice the father is on the front porch pleading with the son to come in. And as the story ends, the son's stubbornly, angrily standing outside saying, no, I won't, I'm not going to join the celebration because you let him in, because you let him back. So I think it's helpful when we see a parable like this to try to place ourselves in the story. Um, are you the lost son? Are you the compassionate father? Are you the angry son? And I think you're going to find in churches more angry sons, more older sons. Um, You know, we can learn about compassion from God. And we can try to be godly and compassionate to our own children if we're parents. But you're not the dad in the story. That's God the Father. We're one of the brothers. And when Jesus is telling the story, who's the lost son? It's the tax collectors and the sinners. And at different seasons of our lives, I bet many people in this room can picture ourselves as the lost son. I most definitely can identify a time in my life where I was the lost son. 
and, and where I came home and felt, I felt like God responded to me much more generously than I deserved. He made my landing softer than I deserved, and he, he, he received me with mercy rather than justice. And I bet I'm not the only one in the room that can tell that story. And who were the angry sons? The angry sons obviously were the Pharisees. That's who Jesus is talking to. They're the ones standing on the outside angry that the likes of these get into the kingdom. And because of that, they won't join the party. They've been earning their salvation, they think, rather than accepting the Father's invitation. That's a very sad story. Aristotle says anybody can become angry. Actually, he said this quite some time ago. Aristotle said anybody can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power, and it's not easy. Well, the scriptures we read today are about people who got angry the wrong times for the wrong reasons, for the wrong purposes. That's why we read the Jonah story. It seemed like kind of an odd scripture to lead off the service with. But Jonah preached this revival. A lot of times we don't read the end of the book of Jonah. He preaches this revival message in Nineveh, this message of repentance. The Assyrians respond. God forgives them. And Jonah goes out and pouts because that's why I didn't want to go in the first place. God, I knew you were forgiving God. I didn't want them to be forgiven. I want them to be punished. And God says, is it right to be angry about this? No, it's not right to be angry when other people come to repentance. And the, the older son, he's angry that his dad is so merciful towards the younger rebellious son and it's not right to be angry about that in fact Jesus was angry and sin not the Bible says and so it's possible to be angry and sin not but I'm not that good at it and I suspect most of you aren't either um, most of the anger I encounter is because of unmet expectations this didn't happen the way I expected it to happen and that's what makes me angry and I don't think that's the kind of anger Aristotle was talking about I don't think that's the kind of anger Jesus displayed in the temple older brothers got several problems Self-righteousness, pride, apathy towards his younger brother, and obviously anger. And in churches today, sometimes we bring all those, and we let those keep us from accepting God's invitation to come join the party. So do you need to repent of these today? Here's what God says to you. Everything I have is yours. Will you come in and join the celebration? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your gracious invitation to us, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your compassion. Lord, you, you give us so much better than we deserve, and we thank you for that. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's barking up the wrong tree with their self-salvation self project and just needs to... Uh, let that go and accept your invitation. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would communicate that to them this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.